It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. Of course, freezing your ass off on a big adventure can make for a good story back home in front of the fire, provided you survive to tell the tale. But regaling your friends again and again about how euphoric hypothermia can be will just make you sound like a liability. So let Outdoor Research help you keep that core temperature up and the epics to a useful minimum. Look to OR for base layers, mid layers, and some of the best active outer layers like the Ferrosi Grid and the Ascendant Hoodie, and then wrap it all up in a down piece from the Transcendent line. Mmm, toasty. Outdoor Research brings you rugged innovation all backed by the infinite guarantee. Check it all out at OutdoorResearch.com and use their handy locator to find a local shop. Outdoor Research is a proud sponsor of the Runout Podcast. On October 29th, Nirmal Purjamagar, a.k.a. Nims as he likes to be called, reached the top of Shishapangma. And with this summit, he also achieved a goal that had long been considered logistically, if not physically, impossible climbing all of the world's 14 8,000-meter mountains in a single year. In fact, NIMS needed just seven months to do it. 8,000-meter peak bagging is a sport unto itself. These mountains attract a certain type. Most of us might guess that type to be C-level executives at Fortune 500 companies, or perhaps descendants of British colonialists and African safari hunters who raised down black rhinos on Kenyan plains just for fun. There's a certain European stuffiness to the club of 8,000-meter conquistadors. Nims is not really part of that club, which perhaps explains why his style was so heavily critiqued in the aftermath by the in-crowd. Nims used all the means necessary to get the job done. Fixed ropes, helicopter rides between peaks and base camps, Sherpa support, and oxygen. It's hard to know what to make of any of this, especially given how little Chris and I fucking care about 8,000-meter climbing which is why we brought in some help. Our good friend and fellow journalist, Freddie Wilkinson, who interviewed NIMS at Everspace Camp earlier this spring. This is Andrew Bisharat, and if you're hearing some birds in the background, it's because I'm deep in the Yucatan jungle on vacation with my family. Um, and we recorded this episode last week, uh, Chris Calus and I, my co-host, and... You're listening to The Runout, so please enjoy our conversation with the always entertaining and informative Freddie Wilkinson. Chris, are you, uh, have you thought out after our week in Indian Creek? Yeah, we, we went down to uh, Indian Creek and froze. Uh, I, I'm doing okay, although I've, I've come back with a cold. But uh, yeah, it was cold. a wild... Yeah, you're cold. I think, like I said, I shouldn't have been smooching your face while you slept. Um, <laughs> but I couldn't resist. But yeah, Andrew and I went to uh, Indian Creek to teach a crack clinic, which we do... Is, it, is the word biannually? Does that work? Yeah, biannually. Yeah. Twice a year. Um, twice a year. And uh, this time it was October 29th and 30th, and it felt like like a pretty cold day in January. Not even a normal January day, but a pretty cold day in January. 
it was utterly freezing. And I thought the people who had attended the clinic who didn't have the luxury of sleeping inside an RV who were sleeping in tents were, were going to die. I was like genuinely concerned about that. Yeah, like Wednesday morning, <laughs> we just, they started straggling in and we're like keeping a, like a secret head count to make sure we don't have to go and like, you know, rattle somebody's tent to see if they didn't make it through the night. But actually, you know, with that said, these folks did amazing. They're not, uh, they're not hardcore outdoor climbers, most of them, um, yet, you know, they, they aspire to be, some of them do, but, uh, they did really well considering, I mean, I, I think I was probably the person who complained the most. Right. Because, and, and that also ties into our intro theme of, um, being a middle-aged man with kids who complains and gripes about everything in life. Um, so, and, and and coincidentally, we're actually here joined by, um, a guest who, who falls into that category as well. Uh, Mr. Freddie Wilkinson. So thanks for joining us, Freddie. Thanks for having me guys. So, uh, before we get into the topic of the show, is there any, um, middle life crises that, that you wish to share that you, you yourself are going through? Oh, parent corner. Um, yeah, well, it was funny. I was I was traveling the last two days this week myself, and the power went out at home. And so Janet was like, you know, filling up the bathtub with water, water and lighting candles. And thankfully, the house didn't burn down. But the biggest epics seem to happen for me when I'm away, and my wife has to deal with them. So, <laughs> so I love you, babe. Thank you for uh, <laughs> keeping our house from burning down, and and you know the stakes from thawing. Well, uh, Freddie, we asked you to come on the show today because um, the big news in the climbing world right now is that a Sherpa named Nims Perja has achieved a feat that he's been working on for the last seven months, probably before that as well, but to do all of the 14, 8,000 meter peaks in basically as quickly as possible, which I think came out to just about seven months. And you got to interview him and meet him this spring when you were in Everest Base Camp. So we thought that you could come tell us about uh, just what happened, uh, why it's significant, and a little bit about who this guy is. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I should say that um, Nims actually isn't a Sherpa. He's uh, another uh, Nepali ethnicity, more from uh, you know the flatlands of Nepal, if you will. Um, but you know, when I go on writing assignments, and I was lucky to go over there this spring on a uh, National Geographic expedition that was doing all this climate change related work. But I kind of had leeway to sniff out different interesting stories that that were happening there. And I tried to kind of like go back to what what were people talking about around the mess tent at night because to me those are the most interesting stories and often they're like right in front of you. And one you know a couple nights in a row we were sitting around the mess tent after dinner and of course this is 2019 so there's Wi-Fi and everybody's got their phones out scrolling through Instagram and somebody pointed out this guy who had just climbed Annapurna and Dalagiri, and then he was over on Kachinjunga, and uh, this Nepali guy, Nims, or Nimsdai. Dai is it, Nepali, it's a name for brother. So it's, it's sort of like a peer refer referential. Anyway, Nims was, had this sort of larger than life 
Instagram, social media presence. And we initially were kind of chuckling at it because it was just so opposite of what you normally see in the American climbing media, where, you know, we all know there's a very elaborate code of how one is supposed to toot their horn and kind of pull off the the humble brag. And, you know, that's kind of baked into our counterculture here in, in American climbing that, you know, you're not supposed to really, you know, be too braggadocio about what, what, what you've been doing. And here was this guy just like... Nobody has, you know, nobody in 8,000 meter climbing has seen somebody like me before. I'm, you know, I'm here to, you know, take climbing to the next level. And uh, superficially, we were all kind of chuckling at it because he just sounded so, you know, just like this massive, egotistical, WWF type figure. You actually use the word orgy. In describing his uh, his Instagram in your article, okay, like an orgy of like rescues and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> I thought yeah. that was an interesting word of of uh, to use to describe it. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, you know, he was, you know, kind of, you know, he he had genuinely helped uh, to save some people and and made really really good efforts to try to rescue some people who didn't make it. And, uh, he was, so he was talking about these rescues and simultaneously he'd be like, oh, and then we got down to base camp after, you know, a 60 hour push. And of course we had to have a good dance party before we, you know, went to sleep. And so we turned up the disco music and cracked the beers. And so, you know, th- this was not Uli Steck. And, uh, (laughs) I realized that, you know, he, he, he was trying this, this, uh, you know, mission to climb all the 14, 8,000ers in a single year, which seemed like a long shot back, back in early May, but he was headed to Everest base camp next where I was. And so I was able to, to track him down and, and, you know, do an interview with him and, and get to know him a little bit. So yeah, you caught him right in the middle of of this mission and talked to him about the potential. I think there's you talked to him quite a bit about how he's been funding it and how that's been difficult. So when you first talked to him and then, you know, after your first impressions of him and what he had planned, in your opinion, just personally, what what were your uh, odds in your mind when he left the tent and you went like, "Wow, that was interesting." 1 in 3 um that he'd pull off all the okay. the the, the, the 14 8,000ers in one season are like maybe 50%, you know, I thought just because. Wow, that's that's good. Yeah, I mean, at that point, like he did Everest, Lhotse and Makalu very quickly in like a, um, you know, 72 hour push, something like that. And I interviewed him on his rest day before he went up on Everest. And actually caught him again when he returned uh, back to base camp, having done both Everest and Lhotse, went over and and just kind of said hi to him and saw him climb into the helicopter and take off for Makalu base camp. It was actually hilarious because, you know, there was a little kind of crowd of some of his buddies and and folks who, uh, who saw him off. And then like three minutes later, we hear the helicopter like turn around and come back. And we're like, huh? 
and like the helicopter lands right back on the same pad and like Nibs hops out and he's running back to his, his base camp tent. He had forgotten his uh, sponsor flags. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so uh, good thing he remembered and hopefully he didn't have to pay too much extra for, for the helicopter to turn around. But, uh, and then I <laughs> saw him a third time in Kathmandu after he had done Makalu. And we, we had a fun little, little get together, uh, at the Yak and Yeti Hotel with, uh, Conrad Anker was there and a bunch of people who were, you know, had been doing different climbs around the, uh, you know, around Nepal that spring. So, uh, so I kind of saw him a couple different times. And by the third time, he had, finished the first portion of of his uh of his quest it sort of unfolded in three basic phases there was the spring in nepal where he did annapurna dalagiri kachinjunga everest lotsi makalu then he took about six weeks off and went to pakistan knocked off all the five pakistani eight thousand meter peaks and then came back to Nepal for the and Tibet for the for the fall season where he climbed the last three. So if I was to think of like an athletic comparison, it would be like, you know, maybe doing like three Tour de France's kind of back to back to back with like six a month to six weeks of rest in between. But he also had a pretty unique climbing style, and we can get into that as well. Uh before we get into that, was there there seemed to be some kind of hold up with the last peak that he did uh, in terms of permitting. Was that was that a, a big issue, or why wasn't that ironed out? Before yeah, that? well, that's just dealing with the Chinese and Tibet. There's yeah. there's always massive uncertainty for expeditions that are going to the north side of Everest, uh, the normal route on Choyoyu and Shishampangma. Shishampangma is the only 8,000 meter peak that is entirely inside Tibet. And so um, he he was trying to, to get permission to, to go. I, that's why I thought one of the biggest factors for, you know, why he couldn't do it, like, there was probably like equal chances he'd fail uh, because of something that actually happened on a mountain or something that happened with the permissions where he couldn't go to Pakistan or Tibet or something happened fundraising wise where he just didn't have the money to pull it all off. Uh, what was the prior record? It was held by a South Korean climber. Uh, and it's, I think it was seven years, 10 months. So it was a pretty, you know, quantum leap. Like, for like, for instance, the nose speed record, those guys are shaving a couple minutes at a time off of that record. And like, we all celebrated as a big deal. Well, you know, for Nims, he took a record that was almost eight years and made it like six months. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty astounding, regardless yeah, of the uh, regardless yeah. of the style or anything else that have uh, and, and those sort of conditions that have changed. And I think also, Freddie, one thing you kind of hinted at, um, people try to reduce or tend to reduce these um, these kinds of feats in, into understanding it simply as just a physical feat or physical litmus test. But as you, as you mentioned, it's all about logistics, sponsorships. Um, there's so much that goes into it beyond just the being able to put one foot in front of another um, on the 14, 8,000 meter peaks for seven months in a row. Hundred percent. 
and and the fact that you know his his background uh you know really makes it an unusual story he was not a established professional climber who had sort of been building up to this uh you know for for years he he kind of just won it he winged was a it, military winged person. it sorry ringed it um yes he was a military winged person it. He, uh, <laughs> I'm a writer, not a talker. Um, you know, he's, he's really interesting. I think I, I just a fascinating character. And, uh, I think one of the interesting things about him is that he doesn't have the typical background and, and he's not really from a sort of a westernized professional climber, uh, uh, pedigree and, and, uh, sort of identity. He is a, uh, you know, a born Nepali. Uh, and it's my understanding he's from a pretty middle class or working class Nepali background. And when he was a young man, he, he applied to uh, join the Gurkhas. Now, Gurkhas, uh, like Sherpa, uh, it's a word that's in modern times has multiple definitions. Gurkha is, was, is both a traditionally it's an ethnicity of, of Nepalis who live in sort of the, the middle Himalaya section of, of Nepal. But in, in beginning in the 19th century, the British colonial army heavily recruited from the Gurkha regions for soldiers. And they became sort of, I mean, technically mercenaries for the British crown. And they fought, you know, it's a, it's a storied uh, military military units that have fought in World War One and World War Two, And, you know, they're known as complete badasses. And for young Nepalis, even to this day, um, the, the British government has continuing uh, agreements with Nepal that allows them to recruit Nepalis to join their their army. And for sort of upwardly mobile, ambitious young Nepali guys, especially from rural areas, it's it's a, a good move to join the Gurkhas. And uh, they fought a, 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 a big public action class lawsuit in England like eight or 10 years ago that gave them equal pay with British uh, soldiers. And so uh, Nim spent 15 years in the in the British Army and eventually worked his way up to be a commando in what's known as the SBS uh, Special Boat Service, which he describes as kind of the equivalent to the Navy SEALs. So let's talk about the style that he climbed these mountains in. Um, he he used helicopters to get between peaks. He also um, used fixed ropes and oxygen. Is that accurate? Yeah. So, um, you know, he's not a style Nazi. He is not <laughs> like, you know, this, this Reinhold Messner-esque, like I, you know, eschew all, you know, modern conveniences. He, he came into... 8,000 meter peak climbing, just sort of with this attitude, like, fuck it. The ropes are there. The base camps are there. There's all this infrastructure. I'll just use it and try to run up and down these mountains as quickly as I can. So he had, uh, 
planned his 8,000 meter peak campaign this year with a, a small support group of really, really solid Sherpas. And I, I think that, you know, he credits his military background for giving him a, a really good understanding of planning and logistics. And he kind of positioned different Sherpas on different mountains. And, and so he'd kind of climb with one team, then helicopter to the next mountain and, and climb with another team. And yeah, they were using oxygen, fixed ropes, pretty much whatever they could to just get up these mountains quickly. The criticism of the style ensued, which um, I, I don't know if it's some sort of, you know, Western thing to do that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it, it, to our climbing ethics, it, it does, in fact, matter quite a bit. And, you know, the whole Himalayan climbing scene has, I think it's sort of, I don't know how long ago, but quite a long time ago, diverged into sort of, you know, what I think and and our sort of climbing media thinks is kind of real climbing versus sort of commercial climbing. And I was I've just been kind of in my own mind as I've read these articles and things, trying to decide. I don't want to like discredit what this guy did, but part of me is thinking that well, it's being lumped in with these other record holders. But you know, it's it's like a marathon guy using a scooter versus not at, at some point. Um, compared to say what Messner did or what um, some of the other record holders originally did. And I, I don't really have more than a comment, but it's just hard to kind of like, for me, it is hard to kind of figure out where this fits into our um, kind of mountaineering culture and the mountaineering culture that that I hold sort, sort of sacred. And what are your thoughts on, you know, whether or not to uh, to criticize his style? Um, They're conflicted. I think, yeah, it's, you know, historically it, not, not fair to compare what he's done with Messner, Jersey, uh, Kukuska, Laura Tan, you know, some of the 8,000 meter greats. Those guys set a really, really high bar that this, even though this is a very impressive achievement, it's it, it's just not on the same scale as as you know what those guys did 30 40 years ago on the other hand it's also true i mean to me one of the most interesting things about his feed is it sort of just highlights like how stagnant 8000 meter peak climbing had become that he was able to take a record from almost 8 years to less than a year and, you know, um, do it basically on his first try uh, without like a, a really, you know, uh, intensive, you know, without years of years of planning it. So I, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm, you know, I think it's two things can be true. It can be a impressive feat, but also it might not intersect with your understanding of climbing culture and the things you, you hold dear about climbing. What's really the most positive aspect of this to me is that Nims is a Nepali climber who is speaking to uh, South Asian climbers and adventurers and audiences in a way that's fundamentally different from how, you know, Western white professional climbers project themselves and and sort of the the 
you know, public dialogues they choose to have. So I think it's great that, I mean, there's been Western commercial climbers going on these manufactured climbing challenges to climb 8,000 meter peaks for the last 30 years. And, you know, there's been a, a few Sherpas who have sort of briefly broken through to being quote unquote professional sponsored climbers. Um, Babu Shiri is one guy who comes to mind, but there hasn't been a lot of them. And so I, I think if we're, you know, the international community is going to continually go to Nepal and, and sort of, you know, climb these mountains and, and, you know, spin a bunch of stories about it. Why shouldn't a Nepali climber do the same thing? One of the things I've been astounded by is the sort of lack of graciousness with some of these big giants of Himalayan climbing when they've uh, come to offering commentary on Nims's ascents from, you know, Messner to a quote from Chris Bonington, where he said something like, you know, this isn't real mountaineering. He's what he sounds extraordinary, but I don't see this as like a big deal. I, I'm not sure I would feel I would necessarily have a negative reaction to that if this person was, you know, some somebody from Austria who was, you know, groomed in the, you know, in the European uh, canon of mountaineering and, and, and came to the Himalayas to do this. You know, the fact that he is Nepali, as you point out, I think is, is significant. And it somehow makes these some of these criticisms feel just a little ungracious. So I don't know if that uh, I'm not a big identity politics person in general, but I, I feel like that's an important. Oh, yes, you are. Story. <laughs> um, yeah, ab <laughs> um, absolutely. I, I And that's to me what, what's fascinating about him as a public character and why, you know, he was somebody I wanted to write about. It's as if the sort of the westernized Himalayan climbing community doesn't quite know what box to put Nimsdai in. He's just culturally coming to the sport from a different, a different perspective. I talked earlier about how in American climbing, you know, it's, it's part of the counterculture and baked into that is this idea that we don't brag about ourselves that we, you know, we do the humble brag. There's, you know, all sorts of, you know, sort of these, these unwritten rules about how you're supposed to talk about your, your achievements and goals, uh, in, in, you know, Western climbing media. Nims isn't from that background. He, to me, he's more of a cultural figure than a countercultural figure. He's like a young NBA player who's, you know, Right after he plays the game, he gets up and gives a press conference and says, this league hasn't seen anything like me. I'm, you know, I'm taking it to the league this year. And I'm just fascinated by that. I mean, stepping away from like the, you know, where does my climbing ethics come down on him? I just, I just love that, that the sport can create these like vastly divergent characters and, and, you know, different types of stories. I'm guessing he's not a, a Buddhist. He's Hindu by background. And, and and what's also interesting is he spent the last 15 years in the UK. And so like one of his biggest sort of patrons slash sort of celebrity friends is this guy, Ant Middleton, who's like a 
ex-British commando guy who kind of like a like a navy seal and he's written books and he does public speaking and talks about you know physical training to be a commando and and he's kind of parlayed that into a, a a professional life and so you know that's sort of like nims's archetype his uh you know potentially like a mo- you know a, a a model he's He's thinking about crafting for himself more than like trying to be the next Reinhold Messner and like waxing poetic about climbing for, you know, pseudo spiritual reasons. Yeah. And I think once again, like looking at this feat within climbing versus sort of outside of of the climbing media, um, you know, I read a bunch of articles, just Googled the ones that came up the, the, um, the quickest when I Googled just to see how the media outlets talked about it. And, you know, without exception, mainstream media didn't mention style or oxygen or anything else. And the outside magazine one, the rock and ice magazine, those, those did either mention it or even concentrate on it. And so, you know, I, I'm a little bit, again, I'm still stuck between, I'm, I'm sort of with Chris Bonington in a little way. It's like, yeah, that was amazing, but you know, it doesn't fit into this other thing that, that we're doing. And I, but also I think it's okay. I, I don't, you know, to criticize his style isn't to criticize him as a person or his culture or anything else. But, um, you know, like so much that goes on in the Himalaya, I think, you know, we can allow this also to diverge and, and be in one camp versus the other. Do you think, Freddie, that this will have a significant impact on what people are trying to do um, in the Himalaya? Do you think there'll be a challenge to this? Uh, or is it just too fast and, and everybody will just be like, all right, it's done? Um, or do you see any sort of challenge where someone tries to get closer to that number without the style of fixed ropes and oxygen? I, I do see there being more sort of types of these, you know, multi 8,000 meter peak expeditions with, you know, use of helicopters and things to, to try to try to climb, you know, uh, uh, you know, several mountains in a single season. Um, and Nims didn't quite create that style either. It should be said right. others have, have, you know, used helicopters and tried to bang out a bunch of 8,000 meter peaks, uh, one after another before. So yeah, I'm sooner or later, somebody will come along and try to, uh, do the 8,000 meter peaks faster and there will be people trying to do them as fast as possible, but explicitly saying, I'm going to try to do them as fast as possible without oxygen. And, you know, one idea right. is the sport could almost evolve sort of like free diving, where right. there's, there's sort of two separate events. There's one where you have to hold your breath and swim down as far as possible. And then the other one, you can use the sled, which is like an anchor, and it just like pulls you down as far as you can go. And so I see 8,000 meter peak climbing evolving similarly, where there's sort of the commercialized ascents and then the ones being done by the purists. I mean, it, it already has to a sure. certain extent divided yeah. itself that way. But, you know, real quick, and, and uh, we don't have to get into the super details, but even among sort of the set that that NIMS uh, kind of hangs with, I mean, are there rules there? Like, w- when will they be able to be dropped off higher on the mountain by a helicopter? Like, are, are there any sort of like unspoken or spoken rules that even sort of 
you know, set that game up versus what, what we do outside of that without oxygen and things like that. Because it seems, I think the whole thing about towing the line has to do with, well, where do we, where do we stop? You know, helicopters could get you way the hell up the mountain before the summit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, on, you know, the use of helicopters on Everest has been like hotly debated for, you know, the past several years. And there's a regulation in place that you're not supposed to fly a heli above base camp just to get dropped off higher on the mountain. You only, you need special permission to fly, you know, a load of gear to camp two. And most of the time that only gets done when somebody's sick and they need an evacuation. So and I'm not sure about the other 8,000 meter peaks, uh, but but there could well be uh, rules in place about, you know, helicopters aren't supposed to land for recreational reasons higher than base camp. In terms of just though, like the culture and the scene, like if Woody, is there something that like, he, you know, he could do or people would do that, you know, would kind of be like a step too far or something? <laughs> and I'm 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 not really sure. The interesting thing is, I mean, when I, when I talk to Nims about his style choices and using oxygen, he sort of said, "Well, look, these mountains are all so crowded these days. I'm going up there, and and the one of the biggest issues I have to deal with are just crowds of of all these you know slow moving commercial clients." And there's a good chance I'm going to have to rescue a few of them. So like I could, he said, I could climb Everest without oxygen. I know I could, I could do all these peaks without oxygen, but it's just easier for me to deal with the junk show being on oxygen because then I can, I can drag somebody Mm -hmm. down if need be. Simone Moro kind of in in an interview with him, he, he mentioned that, you know, maybe this could potentially be a a point in time where we start to reconsider that just mountaineers who want to just so-called collect all the 8,000ers, maybe that's becoming a passe thing. And, um, you know, the, what's left to do in terms of just collecting, uh, summits and doing the 14, 8,000 meter peaks, there's, there's potential, there's so much, obviously we know that there's so many new interesting things that can be done. But, um, once that conversation, like, broadens to you know the more the the typical uh you know client mountaineer who hires guides to to help them achieve those summits um you know this could potentially be a moment in time where that starts to get reconsidered where there's there's not a whole lot left to do in terms of just bagging summits Is, do you think that that's the future here or not no i mean i think i think it's going to you know continue in the direction it's going and not fundamentally change post NIMS. The 8,000 meter climbing community and culture is so vastly different from what we think of climbing, from going to the creek or Yosemite or even like alpine climbing in the Canadian Rockies or in Alaska. It really has its own following and for for those folks collecting you know climbing these highest mountains is just always going to kind of be a thing i think the funny thing when i actually met nims uh he was an incredibly gracious guy he was not you know 
speaking with a lot of a, a lot of narcissism and just you know normal conversation so i think you know i just like you know we all do in our writing we occasionally sort of assume personas to you know further whatever our goals are i i think nims's social media identity isn't his his full identity and a lot of what's rubbed people the wrong way about him has been sort of the brashness in his his uh his public you know statements and posts and i th- i think he's a really smart guy and in some ways just like tenzin norgay uh always had a sort of a foot in the in the himalaya as a as a sherpa and a local and also a foot in the west as you know somebody who traveled extensively in you know throughout the world and and received all these honors in the uk uh nims is sort of has one foot in nepal and the himalaya and also a foot in in the uk and western culture so what's really exciting is what might he do in the next phase of his public life now that he's pulled off this feat i mean he has a lot of potential to be a real leader in in himalayan climbing for the local people and and do good things so i'm i'm curious to see what or, he does or he's going to go there or he's going to go the track of corporate speaking gigs, which is, well, my, I mean, that's where my money yeah. is. <laughs> I mean, uh, he can do both, certainly. Yeah, and sure. uh, I mean, the guy's uh, a millionaire. He's he's going to be a millionaire now. I mean, especially. He's not yet. <laughs> yeah, but on the Asian side of, of things in terms of becoming a celebrity for something like this, um, and if he's got some of these folks behind him that are, you know, I don't want to say managing him, but helping him sort of manage that part of it, he certainly can turn this into um, some, you know, a serious amount of celebrity that can can have a paycheck and still turn around and, and do what you're saying, Freddie, um, and, and become a leader. And maybe, in fact, those two go hand in hand because that profile allows him inroads to uh, places he couldn't have normally gotten to in, you know, in politics or within the bureaucracies of these countries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's 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 definitely a uh, you know has been been embracing the celebrity. So we'll we'll see what happens next. So Freddie Wilkinson is an author, filmmaker, um, the author of the book One Mountain Thousand Summits, and also a, an amazing adventurer and climber himself. Thanks for coming on the show, Freddie. Uh, I hope you had a good time. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Freddie. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com. <laughs>